Today we're going to continue in Luke, and we're going to um, see Jesus use fishing as a metaphor. And so I, I brought some stuff of mine, and this vest is a little slice of heaven. When, when I put this on, man, joy fills my heart. Hey, hey, no pictures. <laughs> yeah. Joy fills my heart because it reminds me of the Eastern Sierra and fishing on streams and lakes. It just reminds me of everything that comes to mind in fishing. The, the pictures start to come to mind, the pole. And, and, and so I have a net here, which will remind us of a little bit of what we're going to see in the story today, although their nets were nothing like this. And then I have a fishing pole. I had a fishing pole. Now, before you start knocking the pink pole, which I'm, I'm very offended at, this is not my pole. <laughs> I'm just going home. <laughs> this is not my pole, but it, it's symbol. I, I got to tell you, though, if, if it was a choice between fishing with a pink pole or not fishing, I would totally rock the pink fishing pole. I'd be there, and, and because fishing is amazing. I don't know, it's just, it, it's something I love to do. There was one time Leroy and I went up to visit my parents in the, the mountains by Mammoth, and we get up there, and it's snowing. And so we put together our fishing gear, and we went out fishing. Uh, what else do you do when it's snowing and freezing cold outside? And it, it was a, yeah, it was a, because you, you just enjoy it. This is so symbolic of what Jesus wants to teach the disciples today. And, and not only the fishing gear, but the fact that I have a pink fishing pole. <laughs> I haven't lost it. This was one of my daughter's birthday gifts this year. And before you, you start to think that it's like getting my wife a power tool, um, it is nothing like that. She wanted this. Okay? She asked for this. And, and I know you guys endure some of my fishing metaphors sometime, but... But what this represents to me is passing on some of my love for fishing to my kids. Um, my, my boys, I, I told you stories earlier about my boys and I fishing this year, and, and it was just awesome, a slice of heaven. But then for my daughter to ask for a fishing pole so she could learn how to fish and be out with dad, there's a joy there. There's a joy to passing on something we're passionate about, Right? When, when we love something, it's great to pass it on. Some of you are going to watch football today with your kids. And, and some of you have favorite teams. And, and you'll, you love passing that on. It's like, like Mathia probably is not a Rams fan. She is a Green Bay fan, right? And there's a certain joy in that, even though we're trying to get her to change. But um, no. <laughs> today, as we talk about fishing and, and see how Jesus used fishing, I want to talk about that joy of passing on something that we love, something we're passionate about. Because Jesus is using this as an example to say, you have been caught by God, so go catch others. If I had, if I had the, the big picture of the morning, it's you have been caught by God, even though you're not worthy, even though you're needy, you've been caught by God, so now you go participate and catch others and pass it on. Get someone a pink fishing pole. To start, just like one or two people, and, and, and we'll see how this goes. Can you share with me how you came to know the Lord in a minute or less? <laughs> and then it's like, what? How did you come to know the Lord? How were you caught? Vacation Bible School, okay? Awesome. Anyone else vacation Bible School? A few people. Wow. 
That's, that's encouraging to see. Someone else, how were you caught? Family heritage, okay? So your mom and dad poured into you and there was a heritage there. Sharon. Old-fashioned tent meeting, amen. God uses a variety of nets to catch us. And, and he's the one doing the catching, but then he wants us to be part of that. Turn with me to Luke chapter 5. And, and what we're going to explore is the, the call, the final call of the first four disciples. And I say final call because this probably wasn't the only call. It probably wasn't the first call. It was his last call to them. And I'm just going to take this off. That's a little distracting for me. Um, but it was the time where Peter and Andrew and James and John decided to wholeheartedly follow God. And this is exciting to look at for me because we, we often think in terms of what's the call in, the, in the, the Gospels? It's the Great Commission, right? At the end, go and make disciples. Go and, and make duplicates of yourselves, literally. But this then tells us how those people that are supposed to be our, our mentors in a way that are supposed to make disciples, this tells us how they got started. It's the beginning of the story. And so in Luke chapter 5, we want to explore how did God call them? Because it, it really is very similar to how God calls every one of us. Not the exact details of it, but the steps of how God brings us into the kingdom and then how God calls us continually to discipleship and to ministry. Continually to, to, to be sold out for God and wholeheartedly following God. And so really what we're talking about is discipleship. Our own and passing it on. God catches and equips us out of our needy state so that we will catch others. We start at verse 1 and verses 1 through 7 sort of give you the first step uh, of the call of God. And, and I've called these four steps the anatomy of God's call or the anatomy of a call. And the first step is God reveals who He is. God reveals who He is. He is God. And that may sound obvious, but it's a difference in saying, oh, He's God and He is God and really understanding it. A little background. We've been, been going through, and Luke has been very systematically showing us different responses to Christ, okay, at the beginning of his ministry. So the first thing that Luke showed us was Nazareth, his hometown. And people loved little, little baby Jesus, little cute Jesus, until he spoke truth into their lives, and then they tried to kill him. So not a good response. And then we move to the crowds, and the crowds are flocking to him, and they're responding well, but you'd have to say it's, it's more of an awe and a spectacle response and not necessarily a heart response yet, not sold out to God. And we have people like that in churches all over America, don't we? Oh, I love God. Look at how great he is. Oh, I, I hope he blesses me, but never getting down to the heart level. And that's what the multitudes represent. Last week we talked about the demons and their response to God's authority. And the demons believe. And as James says, they believe in shudder or they believe in tremble. And so they had the head knowledge, absolutely believed. And they looked at Jesus and said, you are the Holy One of God. A statement of His deity, a statement of who He was and is. But they wouldn't give their heart to Him. They responded with rejection, with turning away in defiance against the Holy One of God. And so that's the background for this story when we see the first four disciples wholeheartedly respond to God as God wants. And so, so love this story and enjoy it. In verse 1, 
on one occasion while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Now, the lake of Gennesaret, that's the Sea of Galilee. Luke uses uh, a different term that, that different authors use, and it's sometimes called the lake of Gennesaret, sometimes called um, Sea of Tiberias or Lake Tiberias, um, Sea of Galilee, same thing, okay? So we're by the Sea of Galilee, and if you remember last week, I think Pastor Andrew showed some maps, we were at the northern edge of the, the Sea of Galilee, northwest by Capernaum. Don, if you can put that first picture up. And so this is the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And you see Capernaum there. That's where Peter lived. That's where the, the whole incident with the demon in the synagogue happened. Right on the water. So this is a fishing vi- village. He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. And so Jesus is going to use fishing as his way of calling the disciples. And he sees these boats, and it's morning. They're washing their nets. Again, we have to understand a little bit of what's going on. They actually didn't do pole fishing, and they would have never used a pink pole. They instead would do net fishing, and what you did is you went out at night, and you went out in the middle of the night, and you went on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and you put out these nets. And this would have been similar to a boat that they used, and the boats were about 26, 27 feet long, anywhere from 25 to 30, but they found one on that map just a little bit south there by Gennesar, they, they have found one and uncovered one, and about 26, 27 feet long, about 7 to 8 feet wide. So this wasn't a little rowboat, okay? Picture half the sanctuary, back, and a little wider than the center aisle. And that was the boat that they're in, and, and these two boats there. But they're coming, and they're on shore, and they're, it says that they're washing their nets. And so you go out all night. The fish didn't bite in the daytime. And so there's no reason to fish in the daytime. So they come in, and every day after fishing, you've got to bring your, your nets in, get all the little crusties off of them, the other things you've picked up, mend any holes, and you had to let them dry, spread them out to dry, because if you didn't, they would mold and rot. And, and, and so you took care of your equipment. So the picture here, and this is important in understanding the, the, the next part of the story, they've worked all night. They haven't slept. They are cleaning up and ending their day. They have caught nothing, and we'll get to that. Verse 3, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and again, that, it's Simon Peter, and up until this point, and, and here even, Luke calls him Simon, but by the end of the story, he calls him Simon Peter, and we'll see why. He gets into Simon's boat, and he asks him to put out a little from land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And this is just a first small request of Simon. And so often God gives us small requests and small instructions. And if we follow those, it opens the door for larger work. And that's what's happening here. And, And he gets into the boat and picture this. Crowds are pressing in. It's morning. The fishermen are done. And, and Simon Peter's there in his boat fixing his nets. And Jesus gets in the boat and says, Hey, can you go out a few feet? I want to talk to people. And Don, if you put that first picture up again, um, if you, you see Capernaum and you see um, Mount of Beatitudes off the left there and just below there, that's actually modern day Tabgas is what we would call that. About halfway between Capernaum and, and Tabgas is where they think this was because there's a, a, an inlet there. Do you see the little port there? And that would have served as a really natural amphitheater. 
And so Jesus is a smart guy, and, and he gets in his boat, he goes out a little bit, because then all the people on the shore in this amphitheater could hear him. They have actually done research at that location and tried this and found that people all on the hillside there could have heard someone that was out 10 to 15 feet in a boat. And so that's the picture here. And Jesus is teaching. Now, in this case, we don't get to to see the content of his teaching because Luke is making a different point. Verse 4, And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for the catch. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Now, now keep in mind what's happening here. Jesus is not a fisherman. What is Jesus? He's a carpenter, a builder. And he turns to the professional fisherman and says, let me help you do your job. Let me tell you what you should do. First of all, even though they never bite in the middle of the day, why don't you go out fishing again? This is absurd. And then he says, go out to the deep water. And the type of fishing they're doing, you don't do in deep water. This doesn't work. It would be like a a number of your engineers. It would be like if I came to your place of work and says, you know, I have some ideas for how you can finish your job. And... um, you know what, if you just put that wire there and you just change that. No, I'm not, I'm not an electrical engineer or a mechanical engineer. You'd look at me and say, go study. <laughs> and we'd go to lunch and it would be good. But it, 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 would, be, it would be silly. You know, some of you work on cars and, and I don't pretend to know anything about working on cars. I call you and none of you have ever called me for advice on what to do with a broken car. This is the setting where the the fishermen are professional and Jesus turns to them and says, go out a little further. He's in the boat with them. Go out a little further. Let down your nets again. Not only is the request absurd, but the timing of the request is is hard. Right? They fished all night. They've been up all night. It'd be like if, if you were up all night and I asked you to stay awake for the next half hour. You would, I know. <laughs> no, but they're tired. Fishing, is a, a, in their way, was a very physical job. They would take, and, and, and what they were doing here wasn't the throw nets, it wasn't a pole. It was probably about a 100, 150 long net that you string either between two boats or in a, a, a circle behind a boat, and you string it out, and the net would go from the surface all the way to the bottom of the, the lake. Do I have a picture on this? Yeah, okay, this is a modern-day picture but you can see the net coming around. And so you would do that, and the net had um, really open holes at the beginning, and then behind it, a thinner mesh, so the fish would go in the open uh, holes, the, the, the wider holes, and they'd get caught. And so what you did all night is you put it out, and you rowed a little bit. They didn't start up their motor. You row a little bit, and then you pull it in. And then you do the same thing over and over and over. And so these guys are tired. They caught nothing. They are professionals. And Jesus says, let's try it again. And, and catch Simon's answer. Peter, I, I know we, we knock him sometimes for engaging mouth before head. And, and I like that because that's so much like us. Um, but Peter here is honest. And, and, and he says, Master... We toiled all night and took nothing. And you see a little bit of reticence. You see a little bit of hesitancy in his voice. 
I don't think he's chiding Jesus here, especially starting with master. And the word master there is something that you would use of a teacher. In other gospels, it's sometimes used rabbi, but Luke's writing to a Gentile audience, so he tended to use the word master. And so he's, he's, he's acknowledging Jesus' authority, but he says, we worked all night. We worked hard. Toil is, is hard, difficult work all night, and we caught nothing. And it's almost like he catches himself. And I love this because he says, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And you see Peter starting to believe Jesus' word. He's seen the miracles. We've already seen the story where his mother-in-law was healed in his house. And so he's taking it all in. And so many times when God is catching us and drawing us to himself, it's this sequence where we are learning more and more about God. And he's bringing us in. That's great to remember when there's someone that we're witnessing to, when there's someone we're trying to reach. You you don't need a magic talk that's going to get them saved tonight at 5. We need to gradually allow the Holy Spirit to draw them and show them who God is. And so Peter says, okay, I'll obey. And I love that obedience even when he doesn't understand. And we can learn something from that. And what's interesting is if he didn't obey in letting Jesus in the boat for the teaching, and if he didn't obey here in in, in greater increasing steps of obedience, he would have never seen Jesus' work as we're about to see. Verse 6. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. Jesus was right. Now, there's probably a miracle happening here. Um, Some say it's the miracle of just omniscience, that he knew where the fish were. I I think he's bringing the fish too. They signaled to their partners in the other boat, that's James and John, they signaled them to the other boat to come and help them. So they both come, they're pulling in that net, and as they pull, you can picture the side of the boat going down a little bit more. The whole boat's as you get more weight is sinking, but then when you're pulling on one side, it tips a little bit, and the water's getting up to the edge. And it says, um, when they'd done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, their nets were breaking, Um, Their partners came and helped. They came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. That's a good catch. That is amazing. This is their, their, their life. This is what they know. And, and it's interesting because we're going to see Simon's response. He didn't respond at the other miracles in the same way. I think his, his knowledge is, is, is getting more and more, but then Jesus meets him in his world right where he's at, and he does a miracle with the fish that Simon knew, and it triggered Simon in his understanding. All of this is showing, God showing who he is. Jesus is showing that he is God. He has power over nature. He, he is who he is and not who Simon thought he was. And so the first thing is God reveals who he is. So many times, and, and there's some of you here that may not know Christ, but God's chasing you. He's, he's, he wants to catch you. He's drawing you in. And there will be a time where he reveals who he is and you have to make a decision. We cannot come away from an encounter with God unchanged. Either we'll re- defy and reject or we'll accept and be changed to be his disciple. Don't miss that opportunity. For some of you, that might be this morning. Is, and as we study Luke and as we study who Jesus is and what he's done on the cross for us, don't miss the opportunity to follow him. 
And so then in verse 8, we see the next step of the call. Simon realizes who he is. And, and, and I love just, just how these are wor- worded. God reveals who he is. Simon re- realizes who he is. He is God. We are not. In verse 8 and 9. But when Simon Peter, and this is the first time that Peter's been added in because there's a change of heart here. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees in the boat saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. It wasn't about the fish. It was that God showed, Jesus showed that he was God in a real way to them. And Simon's response is so key. He falls at Jesus' knees and he realizes that he is a sinner. He is not holy and Jesus is. And when we start to realize who Jesus is, who God is, our response has to be one of of submission and falling on our knees and saying, I am not holy. Because in light of God's holiness, our sinfulness just, just is disgusting. It shows. You know, you, you've, you've seen the paper test for teeth, right? And, and so to test to see if your teeth are white. Now, if I brought a yellow or brown sheet of paper up here and put it next to my teeth, I could say my teeth are white, right? Because I'm better than that sheet of paper. And so many times when it comes to personal holiness and righteousness, we compare ourselves to each other. We can always find someone less righteous than we think we are. Always. And if that is our standard of comparison, we feel pretty good about ourselves. But when we focus on who God is, like Jesus is forcing the disciples to here, it's putting a pure white sheet of paper up against your teeth. And I chose not to do this example (laughs) because it would not be pretty. Compared to the white piece of paper, my teeth are yellow. Your teeth are yellow. It's a silly example, but compared to the holiness of God, our lives are disgusting. Now, now I'm not trying to get us all down this morning because that's not where the story ends. But that's part of the process. We have to come and humbly come before God and say, I need you. I need you every hour. I need you every moment because I am not holy. And until we do that, we are not ready to be ministers of God. We are not. In in our young adult community group this week, we were talking about... um, Teachers incurring a stricter judgment and, and just how many teachers seem to, to miss the heart for God and, and some of the spiritual abuse that we see happening in, a, in our world. This is the answer. Knowing who God is. He is holy. I am not. And submitting myself to him. Repenting before him. And Simon here recognizes who Jesus is. He recognizes his own sin, that he doesn't measure up. And don't we see this response in the Bible when people encounter God? When Isaiah encounters God, and we'll read that at the end today, when Isaiah encounters God, what does he say? Woe is me, I am an unclean man with unclean lips. The the Isaiah of the Bible. Hopefully he will too someday. When Moses sees God in the burning bush, he takes off his shoes. This is a holy month. Over and over we see people falling out. Already we've seen Mary and Joseph. And what does the angel have to say? Fear not. Fear not. An encounter with a holy God should make us realize who we are. 
Now we're going to see from Simon Peter that he then experiences the work and grace of Jesus actually through his whole life, through sanctification, as he recognizes his sin and deals with it. A couple other things. Do you notice at the end of verse 8, and, and this is, words matter, his, his title for Jesus changed. Did you catch that? It went from master, someone in authority, a good teacher that he had seen do these things. At the end of verse 8, when he realizes who God is and who he's not, now it's Lord. Lord. And it's a statement that is, is almost always used by Luke of recognizing the, the spiritual authority, the divinity of, coming under that. Now, I don't think Peter fully understood who Jesus was yet. But I think he's a huge step further. He might have still thought that this was just God working through Jesus. But he recognized that God was present and working. And so the term Lord refers to that holiness that causes just the distress in a sinner. So here's the thing. If I, if I had to narrow this one down. And I put this in your notes. Admitting one's inability and an awareness of sin are prerequisites of service as only then will we truly rely on God. Catch that? Admitting one's inability and an awareness of sin are prerequisites of service, as only then will we truly rely on God. Until our hearts are in that place, we are not ready to serve in the church. We are not ready to take any form of leadership spiritually over anyone else. Actually, I would argue this applies in the business world too. There are times that people have just such confidence. And, 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 and there are times to be confident, but be confident in God. And like, I am a great leader. I can do this. This is easy. And even if they are very skilled in that, I will rarely put that kind of person into leadership. Because the skills I can teach, the heart I can't. I have to let the Holy Spirit do that. Until the heart is where Simon's is, we aren't ready. And that should be a little bit of of introspection this morning. A self-check. Is my heart here? Is my heart so amazed at who God is and, and then filled with a realization of how humble I need to be because I am not? Simon realizes who he is. Third step, because that's not where the story ends. Third step, verse 10. Jesus calls Simon, extending grace and forgiveness. And I love this, and we compare this with other scripture. It's a short verse here, but but listen to this. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. That's how we know they were with him. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. And that phrase is such a loaded phrase. Do not be afraid. And he's saying, He's not saying Simon's not a sinner. His mouth proves that over and over. He's saying, you don't have to be afraid because you're following me and I give grace and forgiveness. It's not that Jesus is going to overlook it. He's going to deal with it. And he's going to pay that price on the cross. And he's going to redeem Simon when Simon couldn't and save him and pay for his penalty on the cross and because of his resurrection, gives Simon a future and a hope. What did Peter do to deserve this? Nothing. Nothing. 
This is the grace and forgiveness of God. One of the things I think of with this, and, and I love this too, this whole story, Jesus uses ordinary sinners like me. Like me. That gives me hope. Jesus uses ordinary sinful people because he's the one equipping. He's the one cleansing. Our part, admit that we're sinful people and need God. We move on to verse 11. And this is uh, the, the key that he's been leading up to and, and the phrase that we're familiar with, but you've got to see the whole story. In verse 11, And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Simon and the others wholeheartedly follow God's call. They wholeheartedly follow God's call. And, and really, we've seen the four steps, that, that God reveals who he is. Simon realizes who he is. Jesus still calls Simon, extending grace and forgiveness. And then Simon and the others wholeheartedly follow God's call. So we follow and bring others. And so the picture here is they have all these fish. The boats are almost sinking. They get them to land. They get on shore. And, and Jesus has, has already had this encounter with Peter. And they drop everything and follow God and follow Jesus. That is not a light thing. And that is not just symbolic. They literally left dad with the nets and the boats. They walked away from the greatest catch of fish and the greatest wealth that comes from the catch of fish that they had ever caught. They left everything and followed God. Now, now that doesn't mean that they burned the boats, and, and I know there's other illustrations where we use that, because we see them using these tools for the kingdom and using these tools in service later. It means that they left the importance of everything. Everything else became less important than following God. Everything else was just a resource for how to follow Jesus. And they left everything and followed him. We see at the end of verse 10, part of this, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And that's part of the call here. From now on, you will be catching men. And Jesus is using the fishing metaphor to illustrate discipleship and illustrate what he's meaning. And that word for catching men there in 10, it's interesting because it means literally catching people alive. Normally in fishing, what's the end product for the fish? They're dead and they get eaten. In this case, it literally means, and there's an extra Greek word there that says you're going to catch men alive. Alive. And the idea is you're going to bring life to them. When you bring the gospel to them, they will now have new life. They will be made new like you have never seen before. You will be catching men. There's also different tenses in Greek. In this one, it's a continuous tense. It's a habitual thing saying you will continue to catch men. This is going to be your ongoing job. I save you. Your job is to ongoingly share the gospel with others, to reproduce. Think, think though, about fishing as a metaphor for, for evangelism and reaching others with the gospel. It really is a great metaphor. And, and I'm going to ask for, for some ways. How does fishing relate to evangelism? 
You have to be prepared. We see them doing their nets every day. That was hard work. They were ready to catch the fish, and they would have caught all these things. You know, again, it's not about the pink pole. It, it, it's about the, the story and the way that they were fishing. You have to be prepared. And when, if we're going to reach people, we've got to be prepared. If you don't know the gospel, it's really hard to share it. If you don't know the verses, and this is why in part of the memorization that we talked about, I started with the verses of the gospel. You've got to know those. That's how we're prepared. Prepared to, to turn conversations to scriptural things. What else about fishing? You don't always catch something. Fishing takes persistence. It absolutely takes persistence. When we're trying to reach a neighbor for Christ or a relative for Christ that we've been praying for for 10 years, don't give up. Throw the net again. Throw the net again. Someone else. Takes action. Yeah, you you don't catch the fish sitting on shore in your lounge chair, right? (laughs) You've got to go out and fish. It takes action. Patience. Absolutely. Patience. Yes. Mm -hmm. It takes a team. Absolutely. There were four of them. Possibly more, but in this case, they got another boat and two boats. Absolutely. You have to go to where the fish are. Yeah. And what's interesting, and and this is why I think Jesus used this as a method for calling them, who told them where the fish were? Jesus did. They actually didn't make this catch on any of their own ability. It was all from Jesus' ability. And if we're going to reach people with the gospel, the Holy Spirit's who does the work, guys. We're just tools. We're to to be out there working. We're to be faithful. But we're to be depending on God. Always depending on God. Does it take training, skill, and practice to fish? Yeah. It does. It takes a team. It takes hard work. It takes preparation. Good job. You guys got the things out of my notes. It means bringing the gospel to people. One author wrote, it takes courage and daring to be on a little boat in the middle of the night on a lake where fierce storms come up in minutes. Patience and determination to work on the seas. Do we take fishing for men that seriously? Or is it an afterthought in our Christianity? Is it something that, oh, I I hope, I hope someday I can reach someone for Christ. Or are we going out and making this our job? Making this part of what we do. And we know, combine that with Matthew 28, this is the first step in discipleship. And then we're to make disciples through their whole life. So they're called to catch men. The second thing they're called here is to leave everything. And I mentioned that as we, as we read verse 11. They're to leave everything. Stuff is not to be as important as discipleship. Horizontal relationships are not to be as important as important as our vertical relationship. We saw Jesus just turn turn people upside down when he said, You've got to hate mom and dad and your brother and sister and follow me. He's not talking literally hate, but to love them less. One of the, the things we do as a family is often at night we'll say, I love you, I love you, and, and I love you more. And then we go through, I love you more than Dr. Pepper. I love you more than the Dodgers. Um, really. Um, <laughs> And, and every, every now and then when they were younger, they'd say, well, I love you more than Jesus. And we're like, nope, nope, nope. 
That, that's, that's, that one doesn't work, and we'd explain why. Um, we're to love Jesus and follow him above all else. Luke 14, that we'll get to in a few months. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's pretty straightforward. Jesus isn't, isn't, he's not saying, well, you might not. No, if, you, if you're not willing to renounce everything, you cannot be my disciple. Think about this with Peter. Who was healed in his home? His mother-in-law. That implies he was married. That's the only way you get a mother-in-law. What did his call mean to her, his wife? See, when we think of being called to follow God, not only in our faith, but in discipleship, to be sold out for him, it affects everyone around us. Just as my call to be a pastor affects my wife. She doesn't get to not be a pastor's wife. (laughs) Our decision to go into ministry affected our whole extended family. There were birthday parties and things on Sunday morning that we, we no longer were able to attend. And sometimes some hurt feelings for that. But that was part of seeing following Christ as more important than everything. Now, this is hard. When we, when we delve into husband-wife and family relationships, this starts to step on some toes. Because is serving Christ and ministering for him more important than our family? Jesus is clear on this, guys. This is not optional. And I'm not saying don't love your family. I fiercely love my family. But I love God more. And that means some sacrifices sometimes. And I don't sacrifice my family for ministry, but as a family, we make sacrifices for ministry. And that's an important distinction that I see so many get men mess up. But that means, wives, if your husband's in ministry here, that means letting him be in ministry, even if you have young kids. That means saying, I am going to take this time so you can be in ministry. Now, now, this is how you do it. And, and wives, I'm just going to give you an insight into a guy's head. Your, your men, they know that you're at home with the kids. They know it. And they feel it. I hear from them. And they love you and they love your kids. And when they get home, here's what you do. You come up to them and, and, and you, you, you put your, your arm around their arm. You squeeze it a little bit. Give them a little kiss on the, the cheek. And you say, thank you for serving God. Thank you for showing my kids, our kids, how to serve God. I love you more because you do that. And I guarantee two things will happen. Number one, he'll smile. It'll be like, wow, this is good. He'll love serving God and he'll love your family better. Guaranteed. (laughs) It's Isaiah. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Because here's the thing, if dad's not doing that, moms, he's harming your family because he's not showing what it means to be a disciple. You can have him home every evening and hurt your family. Now, this can go to excess, I know. And we talk about it all the time. And we have boundaries in place for how many times I can be gone in the evening and for what other ways we replace that. But we've got to see discipleship as all in. And as being willing to make sacrifices together, guys, you're not off the hook. 
Your wives are awesome ministers in the church. And that might mean you take the kids and you don't let them ask her anything for a few hours. Because I know how it is. I, I take the kids and there's things they still need to ask mom. And, and I don't get it. Okay, maybe I do. <laughs> and so maybe I need to give Susie time completely to herself to prepare a lesson or to go minister to someone that, that uh, another lady that needs ministry. And so this goes both ways, but are we willing to sacrifice our ideals of what a perfect family looks like to create a godly family, a church family? Now, this is hard in the environment we live in because culture, and we've talked about this before, and if you look at where culture is going, says everything's about comfort and convenience. And anyone that inconveniences me or makes me uncomfortable, I will fight even violently now if I disagree with them. That's where our culture's at. And so this whole idea that I have to do something hard is foreign in the culture we live in. That's what we're fighting against. As, as one guy I listened to said, that's the air we breathe. And we're not changing our air, but we've got to be aware of that. And so there's this, there's this push to, I don't want to ever do hard things. And that applies to, to both husband and wives. That applies to our kids. No one wants to do hard things. So do them and build character because we know who God is and who we are not. And we humbly fall on our face before him and say, how can I serve you? And that hard thing may be taking a role in the church or, or in our neighborhood and reaching people that we're not comfortable with. Maybe it means allowing our wives or our husbands to go when we'd rather all be together. God will bless that. Again, there's a balance there. And I'm not saying every night. but how do we respond at the end of those nights is sometimes key. If Susie's been gone and doing ministry and comes back, and instead of greeting her like, that's amazing, you were able to do that ministry. If I start to list all the ways it was hard and how how difficult the kids were, now my kids are perfect, but how how difficult, let's just say, (laughs) Mark, are you in here? (laughs) Yeah. What have I communicated to her? I've communicated that I was not on board with her doing that ministry. This is important, and we can delve into this in one-on-one conversations. They left everything. They left dad next to the boat. They left the fish in the nets. And they followed Christ with every part of their lives. Four steps in the anatomy of his call. Showing who he was. Showing Peter who he was. Peter's repentance and and Jesus' forgiveness and grace flowing on him for that. And then finally, a wholehearted following of God. I'll leave you with a final thought. There's some other things you can read there that we already sort of talked about. We need to fish. Joe, you mentioned that. To, leave, to follow Jesus is to leave everything else behind. But finally, Jesus chooses to not do ministry alone. This goes back to a little bit of what Sarah mentioned. Not only were the disciples a team, 
Jesus chooses to bring people along and not do ministry alone. Did he need the disciples? No. He was giving us an example of how to do ministry. Communion today and our time with the Lord, I really want to, be say, to say, God, how can I follow you? What am I still holding back that is keeping me from following you wholeheartedly? And maybe the answer to that is look at your time and resources and ask, what are you fishing for? What are you fishing for? You know, if I say that yesterday I was out fishing all day, a whole bunch of you would say, you're lying because you saw me yesterday. And you know that I was fishing. I wasn't fishing. I was doing other things. So what are you fishing for in your life? We can say we're fishers of men and we're to catch men, but do do our calendars reflect that? Does our time, does our thoughts, does what we're about reflect that? And, and my prayer is that as we come and remember the sacrifice Jesus made for us through his body and through his blood, that that would inspire us to realize who he is and who we are not and that we need him and that serving him is the best way to use my life that ever could be. We're about to hand out the elements and I want to do something a little different. I want to read Isaiah 6, which we read in worship. Because it's the same four steps of God's call. And listen to this as God called Isaiah. And he called one to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. So he saw who God is and now who he is. Woe is me for I am lost I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then you see God's forgiveness. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And then you see the call. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Then he was ready. I pray that as we celebrate communion, we are saying, I want to be ready to serve God. I want to remember what he's done. Remember that grace and forgiveness. And I will find an area in my life I'm holding back and I will give that to God. Dear Lord God, May this cup and this bread signify our offering of ourselves to you. That we are responding to your work by saying we will leave everything and serve you. Nothing will be more important. Lord, help us to be willing to be inconvenienced, to do hard things, to step out in faith and serve you in amazing ways as we see your catch increasing. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.